Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Good morning, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to Jenna Ellis in the Morning. It is a great Monday, and we are working on uh, getting our very first guest. And before we get there, um, I just wanted to uh, go over a couple of the top headlines for you this morning. So um, later on in the program, we're going to have uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is, um, of course, running for president and uh, is a good friend of this show. And he's going to be on talking about um, the Silicon Valley bank situation. And I know a lot of people are very concerned about uh, this issue because um, this is the, the largest bank to go under since 2008. And uh, whether or not we are going to have um, another banking crisis like 2008 remains to be seen. So you're definitely going to want to uh, stick around for the rest of the show. He's going to join us later on in the program. Uh, but right now, I'm very privileged to welcome Patrick Morrissey, who is the West Virginia Attorney General who filed a very, very important uh, case in front of the United States Supreme Court dealing with women's sports. So a uh, good morning, sir, and welcome to Jenna Ellis in the morning. Good morning, Jenna. It's good to be with you and talking about this uh, incredible case today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And, you know, this is an issue I think that um, really is a turning point in America, because if we don't protect biological women, and that's, of course, redundant, we can just say women, and everyone should know that biology is implicit <laughs> in that word. Um, but if we don't protect women's sports, and we allow this um, muddling of the measurable difference between the genders, then, um, you know, what will be next in terms of society? And so I think this is an incredibly important case. And I think this is actually the first time that this issue has gone up in front of the Supreme Court. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. And I, I think you're, you're right about the implications here. This really, to us, is a matter of common sense and basic fairness, because when the West Virginia legislature uh, put this law together, I think that they were concerned about team sports for women. They were concerned about the physical security of women. They didn't want women to be displaced uh, by biological males. And so everything that was done, we believe, is consistent with the Constitution. And that's why we're going up to the high court. Jenna, we even had a local district court judge who originally slapped an injunction against the law right away. And then we submitted 500 docket entries, over 3,000 pages worth of material, and the district court judge was convinced. This is actually a Democrat-appointed judge. He flipped his position and agreed with us, which we thought was outstanding. He did the right thing. And then, unfortunately, after that summary judgment at the district court level, the Fourth Circuit, in a very brief decision without giving the reasoning, reinstated the injunction. And now here we are going up to the high court. So big implications and excited to be here today to talk about it. 
Yeah, well, I'm so excited to have you talking about this. And so if this uh, request is granted, then West Virginia would be able to enforce the law uh, that was enacted in 2021 called the Save Women's Sports Act. And so um, you know, this law says that gender is, quote, based solely on the individual's reproductive biology and genetics at birth. And so as such, a female is a person whose biological sex is determined at uh, birth as female. And so um, you've said that you're resolute in protecting these opportunities for uh, women and girls in sports. And um, and this is just obvious to anyone who has been following this issue even um, just tangentially in the news about why this is so important. Um, but with the conservative composition in the port uh, over the court, um, Attorney General Morrissey, what do you anticipate are going to be the lines that are drawn in terms of where the court is going to be going um, with this particular issue and how they will analyze the case, if assuming they do take it up? So obviously, we're asking the court uh, to step in and to lift the injunction. So technically, if we prevail, the case could actually go back down to the Fourth Circuit and get resolved on the merits. Now, we believe that we're absolutely correct on the merits, but we also think that when the Fourth Circuit did their injunction, they were doing so and they didn't meet the legal standards for an injunction. In particular, uh, the plaintiff was not likely to succeed on the merit. So we're actually asking uh, for a procedural decision. Now, we think that the substance and the merit very much support our uh, objectives. Uh, but I think what will happen is if we succeed, it might be that we have the injunction lifted, then we go back down to the Fourth Circuit, and then they'll get to rule on the merits. And then, obviously, depending upon what happens in the fourth, we might be back up at the Supreme Court. But it's difficult to say what would happen. In other scenarios, they've sometimes um, act, decided not to act. They've sometimes acted to lift the injunction. They've sometimes converted this into a, a petition for cert. And so, and then that's been granted. So there would be full argument time on both sides. So we're of course, going in, and we're hopeful that we can get the injunction lifted, but we're prepared for a lot of different scenarios. Right, which and, and that's um, really important in terms of where this particular case is going. And um, in terms of if, let's say that the injunction is lifted and it goes back down to the Fourth Circuit for argument, um, what is the composition of that particular court, and do you believe that you would succeed on the merits there? You know, I'm going to not discuss too much the specifics in the Fourth Circuit other than to say that we did think that the original decision that was made was legally incorrect, in particular because they didn't uh, really issue substantive reasons behind the injunction. And usually when you look at a decision uh, and you're evaluating whether it should be set aside or not, you do look to see whether they've actually developed a reasoning. What's the rationale for why they're putting the injunction in place? And that just didn't happen here. Uh, but I know that we're going to go forward with, well, regardless of the composition, uh, we're going to make our best arguments to the Fourth Circuit. And uh, I know that the Fourth Circuit has a different makeup than, say, the Fifth Circuit or the Eleventh Circuit or other places. But, you know, we've had some success in the Fourth Circuit before. 
I like in particular the fact that we had our district court victory uh, because that's the court that ruled based upon the really expansive record that we submitted. So, you know, I'm always sensitive to predicting how and when we uh, prevail in a case. I do think ultimately we will win. We should win the case. Uh, I can't say definitively when and where that will happen, but I, I do think we're right absolutely on the merits because the more people look at this, Jenna, they see that not only is it consistent with the Constitution to define these athletic sports based upon whether you're a biological male or not, but it also is designed to protect Title IX and women who have enjoyed participating in team sports for a long time. They've developed leadership skills. Um, it's been a really powerful uh, tool for them, and uh, I am getting... Uh, messages from across the country of how important this case is, uh, because I think it does set a very important precedent uh, that state legislatures should be allowed to make these reasonable, common sense decisions. And that makes so much sense. And I'm talking with West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morsey on this um, emergency application that was filed at the United States Supreme Court late Thursday. And if the request is granted, uh, the state would be able to enforce the law called the Save Women's Sports Act. And um, Attorney General Morsey, you make um, a really good point about um, Title Seven as well of the Civil Rights Act um, that is you know, it, it, it's so mind-boggling to me what happened in the Bostock versus Clayton County decision that read into uh, that particular uh, act of Congress that protected um, SOGI language or sexual orientation and gender identity, along with biological sex, which is what that act was designed um, to protect originally. And so, you know, as we're moving forward just in a broader sense, not um, necessarily specific to your particular motion, um, how important is this overall to have a measurable difference in our jurisprudence between um, how people feel and what they may think and how they want to identify and the and the practical real world implications um, of men in women's sports, men in women's bathrooms, you know, men um, even winning awards apparently last week at the White House that is a biological man that's um, President Biden lauded, uh, you know, as as a as the woman um, who was receiving an award. I mean, how important is this to our jurisprudence to roll this back and say, wait a minute, we have to protect women who are biological women and that definition? Look, I, I think it's important overall. And Jenna, uh, years ago, I helped lead the charge when President Obama had uh, put together his bathroom policy. People may forget about that, but uh, President Obama started a lot of this process by uh, really threatening a lot of the local school districts across the country in terms of some of the resources if they didn't move and make adjustments there. What I will say, though, is that so I'm in agreement. There are a lot of problematic areas and policies that are coming out. But part of what we're doing here is that to us, this is about this is so straightforward because we're talking about sports. We're talking about uh, places where people can get hurt in the physical arena. We're talking about real fairness. We have statistics and evidence showing the difference in terms of the advantages that are provided to these biological males. And 
You don't even have to look at the Leah Thomas issue before uh, the country last year at the NCAA swimming tournament to know that. We know that even in situations before puberty, the biological males have an advantage. So that's why we keep honing in on this particular issue. Obviously, we've been very supportive across the board to have rational policies developed (laughs) by the legislature that make common sense. But I keep focusing on this. My goodness, this one is a straightforward case. And that's why we're optimistic about what's going to happen. Yeah, and I would really hope that out of all of the things that we are debating in 2023 and moving forward, that uh, men and women's sports is an issue that would be so easily resolved at the court just um, because of the harm that can occur and has been occurring uh, to women who go up against um, biological men in the context of, I remember the um, the young lady who was playing volleyball, who the ball was spiked um, and ended up with a concussion and um, and her team ultimately decided to to forfeit the rest of the games rather than go in front of a biological male. And so, you know, this is just an issue, in my view, of fundamental fairness. It is one of rationality. And it, um, it really expands, though, a further conversation about where we're headed as a society if we can genuinely believe that just people who say that they are whatever they are um, ultimately then can say, well, we have the same... Um, rights and privileges and and opportunities to harm someone else just based on what we identify as. And so um, Attorney General Patrick Morrissey, really appreciate your time this morning and um, really wish you great success. So what's the, in just the last about 30 seconds I have with you, um, what what is the um, time frame that you're expecting to hear back sure. from the court? So we submitted our request uh, last week and uh, we would expect that there'll probably be a follow-up that the plaintiffs are going to be given an opportunity uh, to respond. Uh, and that would probably be sometime this week or early next week. And then uh, we'll learn soon whether they're going to try to convert this into a petition for cert, whether they're going to rule just solely on the papers right now. Uh, so we're going to see, but we're going to know a lot more in the next couple of weeks. Excellent. We'll look forward to having you back soon for an update on that and uh, wish you great success. And we will all be praying for that success at the Supreme Court. Thank you so much for joining me today. And we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio Network. The following is not an actor, but a real-life story from Trinity Debt Management. I'm Corey, and this is my story. I was going through some financial troubles paying off my credit cards. I was paying high interest rates, and it just wasn't getting any better. And I knew I had to do something. So my mom told me about Trinity, and so I decided to call. Trinity was able to do something that I couldn't. I'm paying off my debt, I'm saving thousands, and things are really looking up. I promise you guys, you will not regret it when you called Trinity because it was such a relief and less stress in my life and it was the best thing I could have done for myself because once I called Trinity, they took care of me and I felt such a relief, a weight off my shoulders and they are a Christian-based company. I love it. 
If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. I'm Corey, and I'm debt-free for keeps. 1-800-788-1813. 120 witch doctors come to Christ. This is Bible League International. In Indonesia, Pastor Tomdi invited a witch doctor on the island of Papua to hear the gospel. The man came with 120 apprentices, men and women learning witchcraft. And after hearing the gospel preached, they all accepted Jesus and are growing as believers, but they need Bibles. You can send one today for only $5. $50 sends 10, every gift matched. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or give it sendbiblesnow.org. This is Bible League International. Many women in the Middle East are treated as less valuable, forced to marry young, and denied an education, meaning that many cannot read or write. So Bible League is giving them the gift of literacy and dignity and showing them God's great love. Magda was asked by her husband to skip these literacy classes, but she endured and something beautiful came about. Learn what she did to win her extremist husband over. Hear it all now. It's only 15 minutes and free of charge at BibleLeague.org slash podcast. BibleLeague.org slash podcast. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starn. Stand by for news and commentary next. Liberty University's K-12 Online Academy is the best of a homeschool, private school, and Bible-based education all rolled into one. With LUOA, you can take charge of your child's learning environment and create a structured yet flexible schedule that works for your family. Our qualified teachers are easily accessible for guidance and support along the way. And with new classes starting every Monday, it's never too late to make a switch to LUOA. To learn more, text LUOA to 88741. That's LUOA to 88741. Colin Kaepernick has apparently grown tired of waging war on the American flag, so he's found a new target for his perpetual indignation, his white adoptive parents. Kaepernick accused his mom and dad of perpetuating racism. He detailed their alleged racism in a new graphic novel. In one instance, his mom objected when a teenage Colin wanted to embrace his blackness by wearing cornrows. Skin color aside, Kaepernick says he still loves his parents, By extension, though, I'm wondering if Kaepernick regrets that his birth mother happens to be a white woman. You know, it's one thing to disrespect the American flag. It's another to disrespect your mother. As we learned in Sunday school, Jesus loves all the children of the world, red, yellow, black, white, all precious in his sight, even ungrateful and obstinate children like Colin Kaepernick. Got to read my latest book, Culture Jihad, How to Stop the Left from Killing a Nation. It's available at ToddSterns.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back, and I hope you're having a wonderful Monday morning as I am. I have my coffee right here. And, you know, you always got to have coffee in the morning. And always talking to uh, Adam and Devin about that, um, the great team here at American Family Radio Network. So uh, we will be getting to our next guest in just a few moments, um, Vivek Ramaswamy, who, of course, is running for uh, president of the United States. And I think it's such a great opportunity uh, here in the Republican primary to have a really wide a bench and actually look at what are the policies that we want to support moving forward. I feel like as conservatives, we have uh, really been on the defensive so much um, over the last especially two years um, to say we just have to roll back and, and change everything that the Biden administration has thoroughly corrupted in so many different areas of, of policy and Um, of executive orders. Thankfully, the Supreme Court has uh, rolled back some of that with the composition on the bench, of course, attributable to President Trump. Um, But really, I think this is an opportunity that we can 
as a conservative party, and, and of course, you know, that would include all of us that genuinely care about biblical principles in this country, um, move forward with saying, okay, what should America look like and how can uh, we best preserve and protect our God-given rights moving forward? And I think that's always a conversation that we need to have, not just uh, the day-to-day -day, uh, really struggles, frankly, that we all um, see and we all experience um, in daily society. I mean, just like what's going on right now with the uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Um, this is the largest bank to go under since 2008. And the New York Times reported on Friday, Silicon Valley Bank, a lender to some of the biggest names in, te in the technology world, became the largest bank to fail since the 2008 financial crisis. And so this move put nearly $175 billion in customer deposits under control of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC. And so uh, they created a new bank, the National Bank of Santa Clara, to hold the deposits and other assets of the failed bank. So the agency said in a news release that the new entity would be operating by Monday morning. We're still uh, waiting on some of those announcements. And the checks issued by the old bank would continue to clear. And so um, according as well to the Wall Street Journal, Silicon Valley Bank's failure boils down, they say, to one simple misstep. It grew too fast by using borrowed short-term money from depositors who could ask to be repaid at any time and invested in long-term assets that it was unable or unwilling to sell. So when those interest rates rose quickly, it was saddled with losses that ultimately forced it to try to raise fresh capital, spooking depositors who yanked their funds in two days. Well, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis said yesterday on Fox News with uh, Maria Bartiromo that he at least in part attributed um, some of the bank's failure to the uh, DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion issues um, of the bank. And it's been very interesting to see how that may have played a factor into the Silicon Valley Bank. And so um, as soon as Vivek is on the line, we're going to get his commentary on that. And of course, he wrote the book Woke Inc. Um, that is talking about the long-term future of corporations uh, when they're going woke. And having this view of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the ESG standard as well, that really focuses just on the um, identity politics of not only the corporation, but also the composition of the board um, and, and how they manipulate their hiring practices really do uh, have practical real world effects. And um, our good friend, James Lindsay, who's a friend of this program, and um, we'll definitely have him on um, if he's available this week to talk more about this. But, you know, he tells me all the time about how um, this, this whole DEI wokeness is going to end up um, harming and, and have real world practical harm on the um, ultimate consumer product. And if you think about that in the context of um, something like, for example, an airline, um, if you look at what DEI would do um, for the composition of how we hire pilots, flight attendants, safety protocols, engineers, I mean, even just in the context of airline travel, um, not even talking about any other sort of transportation that, of course, um, Secretary Pete is not doing a good job on. Um, but if you look at it just in that view, um, I care, and I think everyone listening, even, you know, the, the haters from the left, and welcome to the show as well, 
Um, I think that everyone would agree that the one fundamental characteristic and attribute that we all care about in a pilot and an airline safety team is the ability to have the plane take off safely, fly safely, and land the plane. That, that's literally it. Those are the qualifications. And so if the airlines start hiring based on DEI standards, then is that ultimately going to impact their consumer product? Should we be concerned about that? Well, James Lindsay thinks so. And I think um, a lot of us can and should be very concerned about potential hiring practices and whether or not diversity and identity uh, ultimately is far more important to some of these corporations that are going woke instead of or at the expense of some safety <clears throat> standards and practices. So those are the things that uh, we really do need to keep an eye on. And of course, um, you know, we don't want to just say, well, any diversity hiring practices are, um, you know, are obviously nonsense. Um, we can always look at uh, what is the practice ultimately of the company? How does that impact safety standards? And in this context, how may this have impacted uh, the Silicon Valley Bank? So uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is ready. And so uh, welcoming him into the program. And uh, good morning, Vivek. And, you know, this Silicon Valley uh, Bank issue, um, how much do you think... Uh, DEI plays into this, or has that just kind of been a narrative from conservatives to not focus on maybe some of the other larger issues? Well, look, I mean, I have been, there's been no greater opponent of the woke agenda and woke capitalism in America than I am. And so I'm happy to talk about that dimension of this. But I do think it's important to understand the essence of what actually happened, just so we can see the bigger picture here, because there's even something deeper here that isn't directly related to woke capitalism, but is related to corruption in this country. And then woke capitalism and ESG becomes a, a part of the picture, Jenna. So what basically happened here, I think it's just important to see the basic facts before we look at it through the woke picture. The basic facts are that Silicon Valley Bank took risks with depositor money that were not great risks, and the bank failed. And you know what? A lot of the depositors are tech companies, including big tech companies in Silicon Valley, that should not have put that much money in Silicon Valley Bank. Now, some of them did because they got special favors in return. But how capitalism works is if you make those bad decisions, then you're held accountable. Well, the way crony capitalism works in America today is different. When you make those bad decisions, if you're part of a favored class, then you get a bailout. And that's what happened to those tech companies in Silicon Valley last night. I just wrote about this in my op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, which is running in print today which lays out exactly what happened. But that's the moral of the story. For years, Silicon Valley Bank and its cronies lobbied for special rules in Washington that allowed them to take these risks because they said we're a smaller bank and we're not systemically important. Well, guess what? Over the weekend, all the way up to last night, they made the exact argument, opposite argument, saying that, no, 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 this was systemically important. That's why they needed a taxpayer bailout. That's exactly what happened yesterday when the U.S. government, they said it's not a bailout. They said it's not taxpayer money. Don't believe it. There's no free lunch. They broke the rules retroactively to bail out those better depositors in Silicon Valley. Now the woke picture comes in where this is a company that has actually been virtue signaling for a very long time about DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. Notably, just a year ago, they made a $5 billion commitment to sustainable finance and green operations for the purpose of a 
healthier planet. Well, you would think they should be focusing on a healthier balance sheet instead. But it's a, there's a cynical dimension. This. this is what conservatives myth. They just point to that as hypocrisy and laugh at it. No, 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 no. This is an essential part of the game because what they were really doing is they're buying insurance policy. They're virtue signaling to the current administration with the expectation that the government would come through in their hour of need. And guess what, Jen? I'm sorry to say it. They were actually right. That's how this dirty game is played. And that's why I mean, I'm on a mission to expose corruption wherever I see it. You and I've talked about this in the RNC, in the Republican National Committee, in the federal government. But here it's the corruption of crony capitalism. And it's kind of sad to see that even other Republicans are really shy about calling this out. And I saw why. I had multiple billionaires call me over the weekend from Silicon Valley, throwing arguments against the wall, like spaghetti against a wall, trying to persuade me to take a different stance. I lost a lot of big donors over the weekend over this. But I don't care. We have to call out corruption for what it is. And what you see is in both parties, but the Republican Party included, you have this sort of captured class because these are the people who actually bankroll them. So that's what's going on. Wow. And that makes so much sense, um, Vivek Ramaswamy. And, and I just want to be the first to tell you that I'm very proud of you for uh, standing firm and being principled and saying that calling out corruption wherever it is, whether it's in our party or it's somewhere else or it's in um, you know, these banks or, or wherever it is, we need to call that out and do so in a way that, of course, is principled and without um, personal interest. And I, I have also been very surprised at some people um, who over the weekend in some of their commentary um, really seem to not understand how capitalism works in America. One of them is actually a, a good friend of mine, um, Joel Pollack, who writes for Breitbart. Um, he's been on my podcast um, a number of times. I've been on his show on SiriusXM. And um, he tweeted this, and I want to get your reaction to it. He said, quote, I'm floored by how little sympathy conservatives generally have for employees in Silicon Valley, most of whom have nothing to do with SVB and some of whom are not woke. This is a soft form of civil war or maybe a prelude to it. We no longer care about each other's suffering, end of quote. And I'm just sitting here thinking, well, okay, capitalism is all about the entrepreneurial mindset that you understand it's up to you. And as an employee, if my if my company goes under, then I go and get a new job or I go and enterprise my own work. I mean, at what point did we ever say that it's not um, caring about human suffering if we allow capitalism to work and uh, banks that you know didn't have a good structure, if they ultimately fail, why is it our responsibility as the taxpayer to go and bail out these banks just because we're concerned about so-called human suffering? That makes no sense to me. And you're absolutely right. It's even one step worse than that, though. It's one step worse because it's not even about the workers. It's about actually the fact that they're protecting the venture capitalists and the founder class who are actually on track to be the multi-billionaires. I'll tell you why, right? What happened is, let's say you're one of those startups and you lost some money. They're claiming, oh, well, then I can't make payroll next week if my money is trapped in that bank account. No, actually, that's not true because you want to know why? Your business model today is the same as it was three weeks ago. That means that's an opportunity for investors, your venture capital investors and otherwise, to put in more money by buying equity in the company. Now, that's painful if you're a founder or an existing VC because that means it's dilution to your ownership in the company. So when the company succeeds, you won't make as much money. That's true. But that's really what's at issue here. 
So again, they're using the workers as a pawn to make an argument really just against equity dilution for themselves in their own company. So the way capitalism is supposed to work is when you make a mistake, well, you know what, even if you have to claw your way out of it, you don't quite make as much money in the end. Tough luck. That's the way it's played. It's not even tough luck. It's actually even the tough consequence of your own bad decisions. If you're a publicly traded company like Roku, which bewilderingly put over $400 million with Silicon Valley Bank with the, two, with the deposit insurance threshold $250,000, that is senseless risk-taking. But what we now tell them is, hey, that's okay. You can take those kinds of crazy risks without diversifying, without doing your due diligence, because the government's going to be there to backstop you anyway. Well, actually, they're using workers as a pawn to make the argument to say, well, then you know, companies like other tech startups can't make payroll. No, you can. You just have to raise the money, which means your founder and your CEO and your Series A investors in Silicon Valley would own less of the company because you got diluted. Such is the price of making poor decisions. And yet that's exactly the class who we saved. And so what happened in Silicon Valley over the weekend was even dirtier than that, really is you had a bunch of people that were rooting for the likelihood of a bank run in America across other banks this week. And they were fear-mongering, and they were stoking those fears, and they were instigating those fears precisely to justify a weekend jam job bailout, which they got, of Silicon Valley Bank. This is crony capitalism, and many of them are Republican donors. It is shameful. Many of them are, were, are or I should say were prospective donors to me. And you know what? It would be convenient. It's a very – I can understand – I am seeing firsthand, and I understand why politicians would bend the knee because it's a painful thing to watch. You're in a competitive race. Raising money is a big part of this, and you see firsthand what those pressures are that cause candidates, including in our party, to cut corners and just say, well, you know, it's really just about the broader systemic risk. BS. That is bogus. It is fear-mongering, but they use it to just – they don't care about the workers. They don't care about American competitiveness. These are all the arguments they used on me. They just cared about making sure their startup companies and their portfolios got bailed out. And the sad part is they won. It exactly happened. And I think, you know what, we can have an Occupy Silicon Valley of historic proportions because it's effectively the same thing that played out in 2008. But we need fighters who are actually willing to expose that corruption. So if I'm losing billionaire donors, fine, let me at least pick up $1 ones instead. I mean, that's going to have to be a grassroots uprising that actually makes this work. If people want to learn more about this or even just hear about the details of my policy perspectives on fighting corruption, Vivek2024.com, that's great because it's going to take that bottom-up uprising because I think I certainly alienated a lot of Silicon Valley donor class over this. (laughs) And, and I have so many more questions, so we're going to hold you over um, through the break, Vivek Ramaswamy, and we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning talking about the SVB Bank. We'll be right back. Weekday mornings at 8 central, Pastor Jeff Shreve offers real truth for today. I'm the pastor of First Baptist Church in Texarkana, Texas, and the founder of From His Heart Ministries. The world around us is rapidly changing, but God and His truth will never change. I may be the host of the show, but I want God's Word and His truth to be the star of the show. Join Pastor Jeff Shreve each weekday morning at 8 central for real truth for today on American Family Radio. 
Jenna Ellis in the morning. You need to be very concerned about what your children are being exposed to if they go to a public school or even if they go to a Christian school. Parents are not just allowed, they have a constitutionally protected fundamental right that is God-given to direct the education, well-being, and faith options of their children. Jenna Ellis in the morning, weekdays at 7 Central on American Family Radio. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. Gallup has released an extensive social survey showing the ultimate sexual perversion groomer's goal. According to the survey, Gen Z adults, those born between 1997 and 2004, have embraced alternative lifestyles more readily than any other demographic, double the rate of millennials, and seven times more than the baby boomer generation. That is not merely a casual occurrence. It's the objective. This is the aim of drag queen story hours and sexualizing children at schools. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner or visit the podcast page at AFR.net. For more from Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. We live in a day when America's families are under attack like never before. Buddy Smith, Senior Vice President of the American Family Association. The war against biblical principles rages on numerous fronts. The Internet, Hollywood, Washington, D.C., America's corporate boardrooms, and the list goes on. At American Family Association, we're committed to standing against the enemies of God, the enemies of your family. And we recognize it's an impossible task without God's favor and your partnership. Thank you for being faithful to pray for this ministry, to give financially, and to respond to our calls for activism. What you do on the home front is crucial to what we do on the battlefront. We praise God for your faithfulness. And may He give us many victories in the battles ahead as we work together to restore our nation's biblical foundations. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And before the break, uh, we were talking about the Silicon Valley Bank and uh, what's going on and what happened over the weekend with my good friend Vivek Ramaswamy, who, of course, is running for president and has um, just a really excellent perspective on this. So if you're just tuning in now, definitely go back and listen uh, to his commentary. And we'll continue this, Vivek, because, um, you know, you mentioned that this is an aspect of how conservatives even are not either, they're either genuinely not understanding what's going on here in terms of um, not really promoting uh, genuine entrepreneurship and principles of capitalism, which then go back to uh, the principles of our founding and and ultimately the principles of um, being genuine conservatives. And and yet then others are perfectly okay. They know what's going on. It's, um, it's corruption. And they are willing in their own self-interest um, to to promote some of these uh, really bad ideas um, for how to solve some of these problems. So where on on the the grand spectrum of all of this, would you say that uh, most 
I guess, billionaires and some of these people who are, um, you know, part of the federal government as well, whether they're donors or they're actually in the federal government, like Janet Yellen and, and you know, some of these, um, who, of course, isn't a conservative. But where would you say that um, the the perspective is for the federal government right now in terms of Republicans versus Democrats? Are Republicans even doing a good job on this? This is not a Republican versus Democrat issue. This is a uniparty issue. Okay, so many Republicans are captured by the same donor class. And, and I understand how this game works, Jenner. I'm not just railing at this from the outside. I mean, it, my former peers from Harvard and Yale Law School, and, you know, I've made half a billion dollar plus myself and bottom up, not with anybody else's help, but by starting businesses in the system of free market capitalism, been in the hedge fund world. I understand this world. Uh, these are many of these folks are my peers. And as of this weekend, some of them friends or former friends, uh, not from my standpoint, but from theirs, because they're so, you know, I would say alienated by my comments. But the reality is they're blinded by self-interest. Many of them are even thinking and even good people, but who would be saying exactly what I'm saying if it wasn't their own self-interest at stake. And then they convince themselves of these new principles that somehow under this circumstance, a bailout is justified. Not in East Palestine, Ohio, not if it was somebody else's bank, but Silicon Valley Bank. And, and the arguments I heard you know, were staggering. I'll see if, if I can, in the next minute or so, pull up one of the text messages I got over the weekend. I can even read it to you, but it said something like, you know, these are the future, this is the future of America. These are the excellence economy members driving the revival of the American economy. Why would you oppose them? And it actually shows the hubris of saying that, you know what, if you're sitting in Silicon Valley, it actually reveals the entitlement culture a little bit, saying that, no, 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 we are the special ones. We are the chosen ones. That's why you can't let those businesses fail with the bailout, even though normally, if you're a hardworking American starting a small business in most parts of the country, if you take a risk, great, you might get the upside of taking that risk, but when you fail, you fail. And I think it's that system of two sets of rules, right? One set of rules for everyone, which is that there's a $250,000 maximum. FDI insurance, FDIC insured maximum for your bank account. That is the rule. Supposedly, that was the rule for Silicon Valley Bank, too. But when they fail, no, 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 actually, we're going to rewrite the rule in retrospect. Even though we said it was a $250,000 maximum, even if you had $400 million in there, you still get backstopped. And it's that two-tiered system of rules that most people in the abstract, even some of these folks in Silicon Valley and in government would say, no, 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 no we don't like that. But when it comes to their own self-interest, those principles go out the window. And, you know, it's one of the reasons I am running for president, because I have seen the other side of that. And somebody needs to be thinking about the nation, but also someone who understands how that dirty game is played. And I just think that this anti-corruption agenda, and I think that's a big part of my whole candidacy, is fighting corruption, fighting the managerial class, whether it's the administrative bureaucracy in the federal government or this merger, this uniparty of not only Republicans and Democrats, but even the uniparty's merger with the private sector that somebody who understands it really needs to take it on without fear and without their own self-interest intermingled with it. And so, you know, I, I think this is going to have to be bottom-up, grassroots-driven, but I hope that's what we deliver, Jenna. And, and that also makes so much sense that it is more of the uniparty, and that's what uh, genuine grassroots conservatives have been so frustrated with the establishment Republicans or people who are uh, in the federal government and they're picking winners and losers based on their own self-interest. And that isn't just a Republican versus Democrat issue. That is a corruption issue. And so it does seem like um, then if you know this bank is just preferred based on the status or based on uh, what uh, good it will do for the uniparty, 
and, you know, some of these uh, partnerships that aren't fair to, you know, someone who isn't playing that game, then, you know, we shouldn't have that type of system. And so in just the last like uh, two or three minutes that I have with you, um, Vivek Ramaswamy, I I think the outrage from people saying, you know, this is so frustrating and this is yet another thing of the swamp that we're seeing. And people are frustrated and feel like they can't do anything to change it. It's almost like we're just sitting back watching this happen and we're commenting on it and we can be frustrated. But what are you planning on doing um, if you are elected president to genuinely actually change this? And how can people help you get there? So we need to reform the Federal Reserve. That's a big untold part of the story. And I think that the U.S. president can do that by narrowing its scope to restoring the dollar as a unit of measurement rather than playing God. They haven't been very good at playing God. They've been playing God with a fat finger. And I think that the Federal Reserve is not God. But that's one example of reforming the administrative state, the three-letter bureaucracies in general. I've stated my plan to gut that federal bureaucracy. And you know what? I think you should get other Republicans, get Nikki Haley, get Ron DeSantis. I think other people need to be talking about this rather than hiding from these kinds of issues because they may be captured by donors. But the good news is my first step is reforming this process itself, even in the Republican primary. My best place to do that, the next stop, is on the debate stage. And I want to get a prominent spot on that debate stage to make sure that no one's going to escape these issues. So whether or not anyone is going to support me next year, that's a question for next year. But literally the best way, if you want to channel that, Make I will be your messenger to make sure even the Republican Party can't escape from these issues. Elevate that in the debate stage. I think number one, like literally this morning, right now, if you wanted to contribute to that, $1, forget the money, $5, $1, it doesn't matter. What actually matters is making sure these issues are elevated. That's what gets me a prime spot in the debate stage. It's Vivek, V-I-V-E-K, 2024.com. And I, I promise you this, is you get me a good spot, prime spot on that debate stage, even if the RNC plays games. Let's make sure they don't play those games. We will elevate these issues and nobody's going to be able to hide from them. And we actually have a Republican Party that stands for the everyday citizen rather than for the cronyism that represents the Democratic Party today. Well, thanks so much. for. I can really appreciate um, your commentary weekly. Um, And I know that you need to run to uh, something else and really appreciate your time today. So thank you so much. And, um, you know, for everyone who's listening to to this program, I mean, this is why I love having Vivek on uh, weekly. Not only, you know, has he been a a friend of mine for uh, the last few years, and, um, you know, obviously he has been very much engaged in a lot of these issues with with Woke Inc. and some of the other um, ways that he has called attention to these issues. But I I'm of the opinion as a constitutional conservative that we need to elevate voices um, like his and we need to elevate uh, more voices of the wider swath of conservatives that understand how to return us to being principled. And with you know, and there's so much debate, and you, and, and you all have heard me talk about this a lot, um, that it we really, really do need to focus on the issues as a party moving ahead to 2024 and not just be tribalistic into the who. I love so much of what President Trump stands for, uh, what he did in his first term. Of course, I got to be a part of all of that. Um, I've, I've told him personally many times how, how much um, the 
federal judiciary is, I think, um, going to be the greatest legacy of his first term because we have a conservative majority on the court. And so issues like um, what West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey said this morning um, about the uh, the filing for the women's um, sports issue and protecting women in sports. Um, these are issues that we can have confidence in uh, because of what President Trump did for the composition of the court, um, along with so many other great policy issues. I love what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida. Um, you know, have there been some disagreements with President Trump, some disagreements with Ron DeSantis, some disagreements with, you know, Vivek, of course. And that's the nature of policy. That's the nature of why we debate things. Um, that's even what our founders did at the very, um, <laughs> the very first arguments in the founding of our country. They all got together and debated what is the best way that we can preserve and protect our God-given rights moving forward as a nation. And I think that we need to have those debates genuinely have them on the merits, not just saying and, you know, calling people names. And, you know, I see on Twitter all the time and it actually, it, it's sad to me that when, you know, when I elevate something, you know, great that uh, Governor DeSantis is doing, then, you know, the um, the really diehard loyalist, um, you know, Trump supporters will call that an out and say, you know, well, you're a traitor. And you know, and then and say, you know, you're not supporting President Trump. I'm thinking I support America. So, of course, I'm going to highlight um, something that Governor DeSantis is doing in the great state of Florida. That's excellent. And we should all be doing that because we have to remember who the genuine opposition is. It's not the members of our own party. It's not the members of um, our own uh, conservative group. The opposition are the uniparty and the Democrats and the progressive insane leftists that want to tear down and destroy this country, starting fundamentally and first uh, off with destroying life in the womb. That's why the abortion issue and the issue of uh, making sure that we protect and preserve life at all stages is fundamental and it's paramount. And then we move up from there. How do we protect and preserve the rights that God gives us as parents, as individuals, as entrepreneurs, as um, as professionals, as ministers of the gospel of Christ, um, with protecting our right to freely exercise uh, religion and our faith? I mean, all of these things are common to um, the American experience. And we have to remember that it matters so much more, the principles and the philosophy of how we understand our system of government to work, than the siloed tribalism of who we support. And so on this show, as much as you know, we can debate policy, and we do, um, I don't want to debate at least yet who. And I have not um, endorsed anyone for uh, for the Republican primary in 2024, and I and I don't plan to um, at least at this stage because I think it's so important, without signaling who I might support, uh, to talk about the issues and to talk about them in a very open and transparent way without. Um, personal loyalties one over the other. And, you know, obviously I did work for President Trump. I um, have a great friendship with him. Um, and, you know, I love, again, what Ron DeSantis is doing. I even really like a lot of what, um, you know, other candidates are saying, like Nikki Haley. Um, you know, if Mike Pompeo jumps in, he's he is a, he was a really great Secretary of State. I have 
um, a lot of respect for his policy positions. And I think that that's actually from a very encouraging uh, point of view that we have all of these candidates that have so much in common to preserve and protect our system of government that's premised and founded in the understanding that our rights come from God, our creator, not our government. And so as we move forward into what is is already a very, very, very contentious Republican primary, I would love for all of us, and I would encourage you um, who are listening this morning, take a step back and say, what are the principles here? And, and, and I like the way that Vivek frames this when he says, you know, let's talk about the what and the why and not yet the who. Because I think whether we get a Donald Trump, a Ron DeSantis, a Vivek Ramaswamy, even a Nikki Haley, right? Um, and and I don't I don't have any thought that she's actually going to win the primary. But um, but moving forward, regardless of who on the Republican ticket moves forward, that person is going to be so much better in terms of implementing a genuinely conservative agenda than anyone on the Democrat side. And and obviously not everyone who may jump into the Republican primary uh, would be someone who would advance all of those uh, values and principles. Um, obviously, we do need to be on the lookout for more of the um, globalist establishment, Republican in name only, and and the people that would be part of that uniparty, of course, we would call out and, and say, okay, maybe they might be better in some ways than Democrats, but um, definitely in the full composition of the people um, who are going for the nomination, um, some people would not be better than others. But right now, these kind of top three of uh, President Trump, um, Ron DeSantis, even though I know he hasn't declared yet, but we're all anticipating that he will, and Vivek, I'm really excited to hear all of them talk about the policy positions and what they want to see from America and from the presidency and the federal office that they would hold moving forward. And I think there's a lot of room here to debate and discuss, and we need to engage on the merits, unlike the Democrats, who will always say, well, let's just, um, you know, let's just call each other names and, you know, say, well, this is a settled issue because, you know, it's Trump's nomination and that's it. And so they would foreclose us talking on the merits as much as the Democrats have done on other issues. We shouldn't be like that. We should always debate and discuss on the merits. And that's what we'll keep doing each and every morning on Jenna Ellison Morning. And I'm so grateful that all of you join me in the morning because I love having these conversations with you. So you can reach us at Jenna Ellis AM on Twitter or also uh, email us Jenna at AFR.net. Make it a great day and I'll see you tomorrow morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.